Let's take it back to the 1980s, during the tail end of the Cold War, and observe how the rise and fall of states is connected to natural resources. In the 1980s, the stage was set for the downfall of the Soviet Union, as even the centrally planned economy relied heavily on the export of crude oil as a source of trade. This reliance would eventually contribute to the downfall, as Saudi Arabia, perhaps in coordination with the United States, flooded the market with supply, pushing the price of crude lower and lower. This devastated the Soviet ruble, eventually leading to the bankruptcy and the subsequent demise of the Soviet Union. These events are particularly relevant today as we see the price of oil collapsing and watch the Russian ruble plummet alongside. Welcome to The Big Trade. now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I wanted to take some time to release an episode before the new year which was to address the price of crude oil and its impact for oil companies, financial companies, and the impact it's having in terms of geopolitics. The purpose of the actual introduction was to highlight the parallel that we see happening in the global economy today and its impact that it could have on both Russia and Iran. So I got a chance to sit down with a gentleman named Gary Dorsch, a specialist on intermarket analysis. And I think that some of the thoughts and ideas that he puts together helps put together this whole picture and framework that we discussed about on the previous episode, which was to develop a paradigm and investment thesis in terms of your portfolio. I also wanted to take some time to thank everyone for listening in. You can now find The Big Trade Show on iTunes in the investing section or using one of your podcast apps. So without any further ado, let's introduce you to Gary. Thanks. I'm here with uh, Gary Dorsch uh, talking about global markets. He has very interesting insights. Um, Gary, maybe you can introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, sure, Peter. Uh, thank you very much for having this uh, interview, uh, this discussion uh, this morning. Uh, my name is uh, Gary Dorsch, and I am the editor and publisher of the Global Money Trends Newsletter. And I've been publishing the newsletter now for nine years. And what the newsletter essentially attempts to do is to uh, collect all the information that comes into the marketplace uh, throughout the week and try to uh, put it all all together into a simple, easy-to-read uh, analysis uh, so that the letter can be read after the close of the markets on Friday evening, after the close of the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, when we have a little time to uh, rest and re- recover from a whole big week of wild and woolly trading in the markets, and to uh, try to get some focus on on where the market uh, might be heading next. Uh, the uh, newsletter covers a wide range of topics, but primarily on uh, foreign currencies and metals and interest rates and uh, stock markets and in many different countries. 
And what we're attempting to do, at least, is look at what are really the most, the biggest movers in the markets at any given point in time and give it a, um, a, a different twist because the newsletter contains a lot of charts that you basically can't get elsewhere. And the charts are devoted to what's known as intermarket technical analysis, where we'll show uh, at least two or possibly three different markets all in one graph and show how they all are, are interrelated with each other and how one uh, market uh, can affect another market. And so uh, the reader gets the uh, visual uh, display of, an, of a chart and along with it commentary uh, to explain what they're seeing in the chart. And along with that, um, maybe news and information that you're not aware of or had not yet heard of. And so it is quite a, quite a process of uh, collecting the data and then compilating it together, synthesizing it together, and uh, trying to lay it all out there uh, each week in um, easy-to-read format for even um, someone who is uh, not an expert in finance. So it can be very educational in the sense that uh, even if you are not um, familiar with the market and how it works, uh, this newsletter will actually uh, teach you how the, how the market works if you read it uh, regularly and for a six- to eight-month period. Uh, I think you'll be somewhat self-empowered uh, expert in international finance, and you'll certainly have a lot more knowledge and information than the average person um, who doesn't have much interest in the markets. Uh, but in any event, um, that's what the newsletter attempts to do, and we are, at least for now, um, heavily focused on the crude oil market, which is uh, gaining the attention of uh, traders throughout the world. And this is certainly quite a historic event, probably the biggest historical event, I think, since the crash of the stock markets in the fourth quarter of 2008. So here we are, six years later, uh, witnessing yet another major uh, meltdown in a um, sector in the market, which has different implications for for different industries, and so um, most recent newsletters have uh, been focusing on the crash in oil and just why it why it's happening, and the impact it's having not just on the energy sector but on other sectors of the economy and the markets as well. So, Gary, and what can so, you tell us about the oil contagion that's that's happening and? In terms of your intermarket analysis, what insights have you been able to capture from this oil contagion? Well, what was interesting is that uh, for the past uh, three and a half years, uh, the price of crude oil uh, was averaging between 95 and 100 and $10 a barrel. It was relatively stable. In fact, we had not seen oil prices so stable for so long. Uh, for for quite some time, and beyond that, uh, the price of crude oil was averaging just over a hundred dollars a barrel, which is something that had never happened in history before. Although we had seen the price of oil go to one hundred and forty-seven a barrel briefly, 
uh, in 2008, in July of 2008. It didn't stay up there for very long. It began to implode and eventually fell uh, down to as low as $45 a few months later. Um, but the average price um, throughout the year uh, for the last couple of years has been just over 100 and the world economy has never, ever had to sustain such development before. And as a result, a lot of uh, investments in the last few years were made on the basis, on the assumption that the price of oil had now hit a new normal and that the new normal was somewhere between 95 and $110 a barrel. And a lot of uh, money and investments were made uh, based on that assumption. So one of the things that has become apparent now with the price of crude oil having suddenly collapsed without warning, uh, without anybody really having seen this happening, or very few, if any, uh, we are, we've seen the price of oil drop from just over $100 now down to just under $60. Uh, closing in New York on the New York um, West Texas Sweet contract at fifty-seven and a half dollars a barrel, and there's different blends of oil. Uh, the one that is really even more important than the U.S. Texas blend is the Bakken Channel Crude Oil blend, uh, which closed at fifty-two and a half dollars a barrel, or five dollars less than uh, the Texas Sweet. And then there's another blend, crude oil. Uh, the Canadian Parsons oil, which typically trades 18 to $20 a barrel less than the U.S. Texas sweet, and that's closer to $40 a barrel. thing is, a lot of um, investment decisions were based on the idea that oil would stay around 100 And what we have seen here in the last four years is that the United States uh, increased its oil production uh, by 4 million barrels a day uh, compared with four years ago. And this type of uh, oil exploration and development is otherwise known as hydraulic uh, fracking. And it's a very expensive process. And depending on which oil region you're talking about, the, the cost of extracting oil from shell rock is anywhere from 45 to $100 a barrel, but the average median break-even point of $70. So a lot of folks got into the oil business um, even with a break-even cost of uh, $70 a barrel, thinking that they'd always be able to sell oil for $100 or higher, and that there would uh, be a profit margin. And worse yet, they didn't have the money to really develop these oil fields, uh, and they were they borrowed the money. You know, we're beginning to learn now that a lot of small companies uh, borrowed as much as a quarter of a trillion dollars, or about $250 billion, was borrowed by um, subprime lenders, subprime borrowers, otherwise known as uh, junk bonds. And not only were junk bonds issued and sold, uh, a lot of banks in Texas and Oklahoma and elsewhere made, made bank loans to these uh, subprime borrowers in the shale oil business. Now we're finding out that um, suddenly the price of oil has collapsed almost in half, and more than half of these shale oil 
uh, companies uh, will find themselves um, losing money at current sales prices. And without the ability to generate a positive cash flow, uh, their ability to uh, pay their debt uh, is now becoming in question. So one of the contagion effects that we are seeing uh, as a result of this collapse in crude oil is uh, the collapse and meltdown of uh, junk bonds uh, that are traded here in the United States on the over-the-counter market. And my recent newsletters, including my most recent one, uh, has uh, some charts and graphs of uh, over a half a dozen um, smaller, uh, lower-rated credit uh, borrowers in the, sh- in the shale oil business who have seen their uh, junk bonds drop to 50 cents on the dollar, 52 to 60 cents on the dollar, and in some cases, the interest rates uh, for just three or four to five years out have gone up to as high as 29% uh, if you want to buy these bonds. So, Gary, and they this also is very have fascinating. Of, oh, yes. Gary, this uh, is very yeah. fascinating. What do we think is the total value um, of these junk bonds? And what do we think is the total value of the potential non-performing loans that some of these financial institutions have issued out to these oil companies? Well, the total size of the junk bond market, which is bonds that are rated less than triple B minus, um, is $1.3 trillion. And the junk bonds in the energy sector is about 18% of the total junk bond market. So what we've been talking about now is 18% of the junk bond market are about $235 billion of base value. Um, so uh, that, that's basically, this, uh, given that the, um, the price of some of the weaker uh, junk bonds have gone down by anywhere from 40 to 50% value, uh, we're probably looking at at least $90 billion in paper losses uh, for investors who, who bought these bonds. And beyond that, um, a lot of private banks that are publicly, excuse me, banks that are publicly listed, regional banks, and as I mentioned in Texas and Oklahoma, a few have as much as anywhere, anywhere from 13 to 20% of their entire loan loans outstanding uh, to the shale oil industry. So we're seeing um, some very sharp sell-offs in bank stocks on the New York Exchange that have dropped to 10, 15, 20 percent in value as well. So you know, we see the contagion effect um, in junk bonds and, and even in bank shares uh, on the U.S. Exchange. And um, of course, on Friday, uh, the Dow Industrials dropped uh, 310 points, uh, culminating a drop of 678 points for the week, and uh, the S&P 500 dropped 3.5% for the week, uh, and these are corresponding off of record high levels, but whereas the initial impact of sharply lower oil prices was seen as a positive factor for the stock market, uh, at some point we reached a, reached a tipping point where the price of oil had gone down too far, in, in a sense, and then people began to think maybe there's some native implications behind uh, this drop in oil. And so to answer your other part of your question, um, these are 
of course, very volatile markets. And, of course, commodities in particular are highly emotional, and they're very schizophrenic as well, whereas they can turn sentiment on a dime without warning at any moment in time. And so, whereas we can talk about what's moving the market today, uh, tomorrow there could be a different story that everyone will be talking about. And certainly after a big move, either up or down, Nothing does go in a straight line. There's always pullbacks and corrections along the way. Uh, we, we do want to try to identify the major trends, but in this particular case, this collapse in oil was something that I would say is almost a black swan event, something that maybe had a probability of less than 3% of happening, um, at least to you know the extent that it, that it has. So, Gary, um, in terms of geopolitics um, and this global oil contagion, um, what do we know about what's going on in terms of, like, Iran and Russia, for example, major benefactors of crude exports? And, and how does this benefit uh, you, the U.S. in terms of geopolitics? Well, of course, uh, if you read the newspapers... Well, let me put it this way. Uh, the British broadcasting system uh, does that for me. Uh, they they do read newspapers overseas, and they translate them into English. And I've been reading some of the commentary out of the uh, newspapers out of, of Iran, as an example, and they are full of conspiracy theories uh, in which they believe that uh, this is the plot that's been hatched between Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf uh, kingdoms of the uh, GCC who are friendly with the United States and that this is a plot to uh, bring down the price of oil because it will, if, if this decline in oil is sustained for an extended period of time, uh, could deal a crippling blow uh, to the Iranian economy and could be mortally wounding as well to the, to the Russian economy. And so the newsletter that I write has gone into a lot of detail looking at the economies of Russia and Iran and their foreign currency reserves and their um, amount of spending that they do at the uh, government level. They, um, these governments are basically subsidizing their population, especially in Iran. The Iranian government... Uh, subsidizes the cost of food and energy. You can buy a gallon of gasoline in Iran for about 38 cents a gallon. And uh, here in southern Florida, where I live, it's uh, still about 270 a gallon. And so um, the difference is that the government of Iran is buying gasoline and selling it, selling it at a very low price to the population. Their ability to buy the gasoline comes from their sales of oil. That's how the gasoline is purchased. And same for food and other vital imports. But if the government loses its uh, income, if its income drops in half, and it's already been hurt badly by sanctions, which have limited their sales of oil, and we could see a point in time where the Iranian government is forced to uh, reduce the subsidies, and therefore, 
the average person will have to pay two or three times more for food and energy than they're paying today, and that could deal a crippling blow uh, to the economy and lead to a lot of social unrest. And whereas we saw Arab Springs in various Arab countries in the last few years, uh, due to uh, shorted high prices of across the living, uh, the same could happen in Iran. So. If the price of oil uh, stays at $50 a barrel for an extended period of time, and I would have to say for at least a year, if uh, that price of oil does stay down for a long period of time, then one year from today we could be talking about a revolution in Iran that overthrows the Ayatollah of Iran. And so this may be the way to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons uh, as opposed to taking military action to uh, hit Iran's nuclear installations, which could lead to widespread warfare throughout the region. Um, this may be uh, the alternative route uh, through economic uh, strangulation. And, of course, Russia is also in a very severe uh, situation. Uh, Russian companies, which are often owned by the, the government itself, uh, have about $560 billion of debt uh, owed in foreign currency, and of which $150 billion comes due next year. And the ability of the Russian companies to finance their debt now would be in question as the Russian ruble has dropped by nearly half. Of, uh, the Russian ruble has dropped in half uh, compared to the U.S. dollar, uh, trading at 58 rules to the dollar. And so the Russian companies that need to acquire dollars in order to pay off their debt now must pay almost twice as many rules to acquire the same dollar, which essentially is increasing, doubling their cost of uh, servicing the debt and paying back the principal, therefore raising the probability that they may default on debt as well and lead to... Uh, severe economic consequences in, in Russia. And Russia's ability to uh, sustain uh, such a development is all based on its $420 billion of foreign currency reserves, which is a very large stash of money. But at, at the current rate that it's going and trying to defend its currency, and if it was to have to be the lender of last resort to Russian companies, uh, that money could run out about two years, and then Russia could be back on the verge of collapse as well. So um, we talk about geopolitics, of course, uh, Russia and Iran are, in the eyes of the West, uh, two of the worst bad actors. Uh, in fact, Russia and Iran have become very close uh, in recent uh, months of signing an agreement uh, in which uh, Russia has agreed to buy a half million barrels of oil a day directly from Iran uh, in exchange for Russian manufactured goods. So the two, the two uh, countries, Iran and Russia, now have a barter agreement in which Russia will sell barter manufactured goods uh, uh, to uh, Iran and in return get paid in Iranian oil. And then Russia will turn around as a third-party middleman and sell the Iranian oil on the marketplace, which will add to the excess supply of oil, but also give Iran a way to evade sanctions that have been put upon it by the Western countries. And so, uh, one way to do to, do, to put a nail in the coffin of this arrangement is to drop the price of oil. 
And Saudi Arabia, in particular, has the power to enforce low oil prices if it should choose to do so. Saudi Arabia produces 9.5 million barrels a day, but has the capacity to produce uh, an additional 3 million barrels a day if it should choose to do so, up to 12.5 million. And should that happen, uh, it would be able to probably enforce the price of oil between 40 and 60 a barrel for about a year's time. And that would be about all that's necessary in order to bring about its objectives of crippling or toppling uh, the Iranian economy and doing a lot of damage to the Russian economy. That would be the geopolitical uh, viewpoint of that. And that, of course, is something that is not often talked about on the surface. On the surface, what we hear is that the uh, Saudis are letting the marketplace determine the price. They have nothing to do with what's going on. And they're saying that this is really uh, taking aim at the U.S. short shale oil industry. Uh, but in reality, behind the scenes, uh, privately, uh, this is all about trying to deal a uh, crippling blow to Iran uh, and Russia. Excellent. In regards to um, iron ore, you also mentioned the same uh, characteristics are happening in that market as well. What is it that you're noticing happening in the iron ore market, Gary? Well, the iron ore market is uh, it's an interesting market. It's not widely followed in the United States because there is no futures market for iron ore in the United States. Um, there is a futures market for iron ore in Singapore, and there's one in London. Uh, but primarily, it's traded in the spot market in Shanghai, which is uh, the biggest user uh, of iron ore, which is a, a key ingredient for making the steel. And steel, of course, is used as uh, uh, a key me- uh, mineral metal uh, for for construction, especially for the infrastructure boom uh, in in China and elsewhere in emerging Asia. Uh, Iron ore is the most uh, widely, heavily exported metal in the world outside of crude oil. And uh, when you do look at the the, um, Baltic Dry Index, for instance, um, iron ore is the most actively traded metal. So it is extremely important market, and it tells us a lot about the health of the world economy, uh, because it is so tied in with uh, infrastructure and construction, and we could also say copper has similar characteristics. So these two cousins, I say, are, are give us some indication of, um, of, of the health of the global economy as well. So they're good barometers that we can look at. And the price of iron ore hit a record high of $180 a ton uh, when the world economy was growing about twice as fast as it is today. And today the price of iron ore has dropped to a uh, six-year low of uh, just under, well, about $68.5 a ton. Uh, one year ago, it was at $140 a ton, and then one year later today, it's at just under 70 So it's a similar situation where it's dropped in half. Uh, what makes this different, however, is uh, there are three miners, uh, BHB Billiton, Rio Tinto, and Brazil's Valley, 
which control 80% of the iron ore market. And the others are smaller miners in Australia and others in, in China, a few in Canada, and, and a few elsewhere. Um, but uh, I began to notice, as I started writing in my newsletter uh, last Friday, uh, that for the first time, only in the last few weeks, are we starting to see uh, the world's largest miner in iron ore, uh, Vale, uh, starting to see that its bond prices are falling. And as its stock price uh, fell to $7 a share, you can track Vale under tech symbol V-A-L-E. And that is uh, below uh, the low from the 2009, March 2009 lows that we saw at the nadir of the Great Recession lows. So uh, this stock is at extreme low prices compared to where it's been historically and even in worse condition than it was during the Great Recession. And in the last two months, the yield on Fale's longer-term bond has increased by about 137 basis points, or about one and three eighths percent higher, as the stock prices move lower and as the price of iron ore has moved lower. And in another market called the credit default swap market, that is where traders pay for insurance to insure against the possibility of a default by the borrower, in this case, Vale. Cost of purchasing insurance against a default by Vale has doubled uh, in recent weeks. So we're seeing a contagion in a certain respect uh, in the iron ore market as well. In other words, uh, crude oil iron ore are telling us that the world economy, and maybe China in particular, is much weaker than what the official government statistics are saying. And I, I would advise everybody should always look at government statistics with a healthy grain of skepticism uh, because uh, they are manipulated and fudged uh, to a certain degree by bureaucrats, and to a certain degree they are used as propaganda tools to uh, tell the, the, mass, the masses at large that conditions are maybe better than they actually are. Luckily, we do have markets that we can watch. And while you can fool the market for so long, eventually the truth will come out. And sometimes when you see these radical shifts, uh, such as what we're seeing in the oil market today, it could be indicative of a market that was being fooled for a long time and thinking that the world economy was actually in much better shape than it really actually is. And now reality is starting to dawn on the market. And I was reading some commentaries by some traders who said the reason the U.S. stock market dropped as much as it did last week was because uh, some folks are saying that maybe this decline in oil is a signal that the world economy is not doing as well as it has been previously uh, uh, had been previously assumed. This is all part of uh, the marketplace, though, you know. And um, so it is what it is. And the newsletter basically lets everybody see how all this how all this works out. So, what did you think? Gary had actually mentioned to me that perhaps some of his answers were a little bit more long winded. 
And what we decided to do was to break this episode into two parts. The second part is probably equally as interesting if you actually listen to the content. Um, We discuss about oligarchs and their role in the economy and the role that plutocrats and technocrats have in the economy as well. We cover many different investing themes and intermarket analysis as well. So I'd like to release that second episode in the not-too-distant future. I hope you enjoyed yourself and look forward to speaking to you sometime soon. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.